Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. On today's episode, we have Alan Havda joining us, uh, and this is kind of a listener feedback, um, a, a call-in, I guess, from a previous episode that we had talked about aerodynamics and heat transfer. And this is something that Alan is really interested in, so he reached out and contacted us and wanted to have a discussion about his experiences. Uh, so as a pro triathlete, uh, Alan has gone, well, experienced everything from extremely cold uh, to very hot triathlons. And he definitely knows what he's talking about because he's won a number of extreme triathlons, including uh, the Norseman and Swissman. And he's had uh, a number of great finishes as well in, in hot triathlons. So welcome to the show, Alan. Oh, thank you very much uh, uh, for, uh, for letting me join the podcast. It's, uh, it's going to be uh, uh, a nice talking to you. So, Alan, why don't we start uh, maybe with uh, a bit of an introduction of uh, your athletic career and uh, maybe some some highlights for us. And then, as Andrew mentioned, uh, your interest in uh, specifically in aerodynamics and in uh, obviously you have to be interested in racing in different climates, given the races that you do. So maybe talk about uh, just kind of high level what uh, what some of those challenges present. Yeah, uh, first my uh, my athletic background is uh, is at least at least uh, interesting for for someone because I didn't start triathlon before I was twenty three years old, uh, and I had no swimming background uh, or no other like endurance or elite sport background. Uh, so I was uh, I was a recreational kickboxer at the at the moment and just wanted to do the impossible thing and that was to to finish the Norseman Extreme Triathlon. Uh, so that was back in 2000 and, um, 2009. So that was that was like I I didn't think it was possible to finish it but uh, but uh, I, I at least I, I tried. So and I did. And after that I just fell in love with the sport and and grew more and more fond of it and like the process of uh, continuously improving. And it, I had my, I think, breakthrough in 2014 when I won the Norseman for the first time. And then I won Norseman the year after, and then I went pro. Very cool. Very and, cool. Yeah. So, and, and then that, like you said, I've done Norseman, and the, 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 the coldest we had with, during the cycling was near, uh, zero degrees Celsius. Um, and the, and I have done um, Challenge Puke uh, as well at the other side, which is, was 40 degrees with 100% humidity. Uh, so that was uh, rather interesting. And uh, I definitely know what I prefer <laughs> if I could choose. <laughs> so which one is it? Which one do you like better? Yeah, the, the cold, definitely the cold. So putting this in context, uh, my first triathlon was a sprint distance and it was in 25 degree weather and it was pretty flat. It was uh, not that exciting. So not only did you start with a full distance triathlon, but the Norseman has got to be one of the toughest full distance out there. Um, so it's, I think it, it follows the standard Ironman full distance lengths, right? It's the 3.8K swim, 180K bike, and then marathon except there's 5,000 meters of elevation gain and it's a point to point race. So it's not like you're ending up at the same elevation. You 
Yeah, the, it is. It is for sure a, a tough, a tough, tough, tough race. Uh, like uh, my finish time was fourteen hours, uh, so that was three hours behind the winner so even the winner uses is quite a lot of lot more time than um, a regular Ironman and it is it is tough to 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 have done the full distance and the hilly bike course and you have run the first 25 kilometers which is flat and then you and then you you start at uh, I think maybe 700 height meters of elevation from there so that's 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 hard but then again from from uh, like a muscular standpoint, it's it's low, much much easier for the for the body compared to the the, the flat marathons because you do, you don't get the beatings. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you recover much faster. Yeah, I think hard is a word that doesn't quite describe the the challenge there. So that's that's incredible. Congratulations for having such a great history with that race. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, hard is a very relative term. Very relative. Um, but uh, Alan, I, we were we were wondering what uh, what you do um, by way of uh, preparing for so both in your training and in your gear selection and actually coping with the very very different conditions that you've described in Norseman compared to Phuket. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I'm I'm I'm. Bit- um, I have become much better at equipment uh, wise uh, over the past years because, like in in the Northman, it's it obviously is weather dependent. And the last few years, we the two years we had quite quite good weather actually. Um, but uh, one year we had four degrees and and rain the 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 most of the bike ride, and then you really have to you really have to prioritize to uh to to put enough clothing on so i i have like uh i have like road uh, road bike shoes for uh like winter specific road bike shoes to use just in case because if you get um if you get too cold um then then you cannot perform absolutely and i think that is one of the reasons why why very fast uh triathletes from uh, other countries have tried Northman without uh, succeeding. So we had uh, some quite, quite good caliber athletes doing the race, which was, which, uh, which, which definitely have, have uh, underperformed in, in that regard. And I, I think the not having enough clothing is, is essential. Right. And what about from a training perspective is, is there anything that you do to, from uh, you know in your in your preparation phase for the race that's specific to the conditions? Um, no, yeah, I, I have, I have, um, yeah. Uh, there's uh, just a few things because uh, since it's a lot of elevation on the run, I tried to I implement some hill repeats on the run to get the specific muscular uh, uh, load. And I tried to do some terrain run as well, because I, I usually don't run in terrain because it's, it's not, uh, it's not uh, very near where I live. I usually run flat on a tarmac or on treadmill, uh, but I, it, it's, it's important to do some terrain running to, to, because when you're entering the mountain, if you, if you haven't, then you, you, there's a high probability that you will cramp up because you use muscles uh, to stabilize, to stabilize, uh, which if you haven't trained them, then there would definitely be a weakness. Right. So it's mostly like the hill, 
um, the hill specific uh, running and for swimming it's it is you you should go and go out for the cold swim if you have the possibilities for if you have cold swim nearby if it's like you can you can expect anything from 10 to 16 degrees celsius so try to 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 get used to to swimming in those conditions and i'm 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 quite relative i'm 180 centimeters and 68 kilos so i'm i'm not like the compact guy and i freeze easily right uh, so it's uh, but i can swim the coldest i've been swimming in is three degrees celsius it was like in 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 the christmas it was just a trial so then i was swimming for 11 minutes and it was except from the hands which was the weakness it was it was all good so everything is about getting the right equipment for swimming in the cold weather. What is that equipment? And then that's my first question. But my second point is going to be to all our all the uh, the Toronto people who are complaining about the lake being, you know, 10, 11 degrees. You can you can listen to, you know, take take your uh, take your cue from Alan and go swimming when it's three degrees or maybe don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if you if you I, I don't I don't enjoy freezing so just have i'm, I'm not i'm not I'm, I'm not a, i'm not a psychopath so it's just <laughs> it's just other people look at me and think i'm a psychopath but it's uh, it's it's more like an experimental kind of thing and that's much uh, much my philosophy and approach to it i'll just i just try so it's like okay it's it's three degrees in the water and it's zero minus or a couple of minus degrees in in the air yeah, let's go have a swim and see how it goes. <laughs> You're a lot braver than I am. <laughs> yeah, but uh, for like the uh, when you go to zero, close to zero degrees, then there's uh, then you have to to be then it's difficult to get uh, to get uh, good enough uh, protection for the hands. But at ten degrees, then it's it's no no issue. Everybody can 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 swim comfortably in ten degrees. So the the thing is, uh, number one is a tight-fitting wo- uh, wetsuit uh, because you obviously you don't want cold water coming in the net when you're swimming. Yep. And and the second thing is, uh, I have something is called a balaclava, neoprene balaclava. It's made if from Hub, a Hub, uh, which was a former sponsor of mine, and I I asked them for years if they could make one, and they finally made one. Uh, for me, um, for uh, for the Norseman a year, and after that they had it in production. So that that covers like it goes over the head and covers the neck and go build, uh, under the wetsuit. So that's uh, that's a really really big big deal to to cover the 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 neck and the big veins going up to your head. So it's more than just the thermal cap, right? Is that the, the, because it, it it actually goes down? Does it go underneath the the neckline of the wetsuit? Yeah, it goes underneath. So it is it is like a thermal cap, just a balaclava. Got it. So the extra protection you get there from the balaclava and from the wetsuit are obviously pretty important. Um, surviving the the swim is one thing, but then getting to the transition. Um, every cold race I've had the transition is the hardest part because you're going from one sport to another and you can't really feel your extremities. Um, so it's really difficult to get your feet into your shoes properly, uh, to, you know, just to hold onto the bike and feel the bike or even transitioning to the run. So 
what did you find helped with making that transition? Did you find it very difficult to go from the swim to the bike and then the bike to the run? Yeah, that's uh, it's sometimes it uh, it was difficult, like you said. You you don't you can't feel your hands. So uh, at the, a race like Northman, at least personally, I I always go for socks in the shoes in the bike shoes. So uh, one year I I wasn't able to put the socks on uh, because I I wouldn't I I didn't have enough uh, feeling in my fingers to to actually do that. So. Uh, the 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 solution was to 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 use uh, like uh, now I use wool socks which are they're they are not very tight so they're quite flexible and they're quite short so they they just they they're quite easy to to put on the sho- uh, put on on the feet and then the the shoes are like it's the I have a, a triathlon shoe with uh, a velcro on and. And that is, I, I take it on. I, I don't do a, a flying start at, at Norseman because you, I wouldn't be able to put the feet into the shoe. Your wool socks would stick to the Velcro and you would be stuck. Yeah, it would. It wouldn't be so good. Yeah, you, yeah, you don't, you don't have feeling. So I just, I just, I just do that securely. But I also we have, you have support. You're able to have one supporter in the transition zone with you to, to actually make that change. But it, it it could be a challenge. But if you have like tight socks, that's it, it can make it impossible. So that was one year I, I wasn't able to put my socks on. So I I learned from that experience. Uh, but the, in in regards, you can use you can use neoprene socks as well. It's usually or it's uh, it's it's always allowed in the in the extreme triathlon. Okay. Yeah. Neoprene socks. It it yeah it 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 goes personally i i i swim maybe one one or two seconds slower per hundred meters so i don't prefer to use them but if, but if the uh but if it's like one year we had ten degrees in Northman and they shortened the swim then I use them because i i couldn't risk getting too cold in that one year that you mentioned it was zero degrees on the bike. Uh, did you have a lot of trouble transitioning to the run after that? Did you have the same problem getting your running shoes on, or was it a little bit better once you were dry? Yeah, no, that that was that was it was much better, and the zero degrees was at the coldest at Tadangovida, which is the the plateau uh, we are we are passing, and when you are coming closer to the the run, it's usually uh, uh, much hotter. So I think it was maybe. Yeah, 10, 12 degrees, something like that, when we started the run. Uh, so that it isn't it isn't hot, but I like I I use uh, like winter gloves for for cycling and a winter jacket. But you should get a tight tight fitting winter jacket. So actually, when I visited the wind tunnel, I actually tried some winter jackets to see how how the difference was. <laughs> That's got to be a first. Someone taking a winter jacket into a wind tunnel. Well, arrow is everything, guys, right? Oh yeah, yeah. there's two chains there. Yeah, there, there's, there's definitely uh, a lot to to lose. Or I know I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think you lose maybe five watts at uh, what, 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 at forty-five kilometers per hour using a, a I think it was a Castelli Gabba jacket compared to uh, compared to. Um, uh, my be a race or uh, a tri suit so uh, which was the fastest so that was uh, it it is it is a loss but you you can't 
normally you can't do um, the Norseman in just a regular crisis, then you, you wouldn't, you would freeze. <laughs> you would be hypothermic and you would uh, stop somewhere at the bike course. For sure. This is a really important point that, you know, we, we, we operate often in the, in the area of marginal gains, right? Where we're trying to shave a watt here and there. And five watts is a non-trivial number, right? That's, you know, outside of the margin of error. And that's, that's a, a real, you know, a real aerodynamic loss, as you put it. But if you're, you know, if it's, if you're not comfortable or if you're not able to, you know, keep your core temperature up because it's just it's just too cold then that becomes a moot point right if you if you can't finish or if you can't hold the wattage then uh, then it doesn't really matter how what your cda is no no it's i i i truly tried that as well uh, i had in 2016 i had i got something called swim induced uh, pulmonary edema like we, oh wow okay that's pretty serious yeah i was like having an internal bleeding in my lung and that was, um, I, I felt uh, I was breathing heavy from the start, but I felt quite good until the halfway of the bike. Uh, but then I would, uh, at the same time, I was pushing myself uh, um, to, I was freezing a lot and I didn't stop for changing uh, my clothing. And when I started uphill, which I, I, I've done before and I trained for like pushing 280 watts when the uphill stopped, then I was down to 220. So. If if I get too cold, I know I can, I I lose uh, I lose five watts for putting on the jacket, but I can lose sixty watts for for being too cold. Yeah, and you never you never want internal bleeding in in, in your lungs. That's that's you know that's a, that's a health emergency, right? No, no, no. That was another issue. So I, yeah, yeah I started the run and I was uh, I was running a couple of kilometers and I was running zigzag and I was coughing blood and then then I quit. <laughs> Wow. So that was, uh, yeah, no, yeah, I, I pushed it way too far, but I, I never DNF before. So my threshold for, for doing it was, was quite high, but uh, that was definitely a, a good call then. Well, it's interesting to know what can actually happen in the extreme cases because safety does become very important consideration with that. Um, mostly we think about performance, but uh, yeah, the, the safety aspect is something that can't be ignored. For sure. Yeah, no, no, definitely. It, it was, uh, it was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the way I, I didn't want to end the, the race in ambulance, but, uh, at, at the same time, it was one of my most valuable experiences because it's like, it, it's, it's, it's the time you understand that, okay, uh, triathlon means nothing and being alive and being there for, for the family and having those moments is, is everything. So. Uh, it's it's nice to to have that revelation uh, as well. I, at least uh, at least at a fairly young age, not uh, not uh, not finding it out uh, when I'm 85 and at my deathbed. Right, right, yeah, and that, that perspective of having a family that always, yeah, I think that's that's a nice guiding light to help steer you towards the right decision. And guys, while this is a, you know, I'd, we could talk about Norseman because it's such a such a fascinating race. We could talk about it for a long time. Um, just being a little bit mindful of our time, um, Alan. I think that one of the one of the issues that I know a lot of the folks that I work with um, face, and uh, and other people in the northern hemisphere, uh, certainly people in Norway, northern Europe, is how to cope with a hot race, especially a hot race that's somewhat early in the season, like um, you mentioned doing Texas. 
given that you're training in uh, in cold conditions. So what are some of the, you know, the the adaptations and some of the the coping mechanisms that you've adopted in in doing just that? Yeah, and and um, finding my mechanism mechanisms uh, was uh, was was motivated by going like from these cold uh, conditions where I was training and living, and to those hot races, and I was completely falling apart. Uh, and I, I I did it again and again, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't able to to really really perform. So uh, a major thing is uh, is like the heat adaptation in advanced in advance so uh, it's maybe uh, i maybe do it uh, three times uh, a week uh, starting maybe six weeks prior to races to do the heat acclimatization sessions so that that could be it could be different things it could be like after a hard workout you can just go to a sauna or a steam room if you have one i i have a gym in my uh, in the basement of my building where i live so they have a quite a good steam room and and sauna uh and you can you can sit there uh or you can uh run inside with uh like you can put some from extra clothing when you're running on a treadmill or you can do turbo sessions uh, inside. Uh, like I, I, I do a lot of my my bike bike uh, training on the turbo uh, inside, and usually I have a big fan because, uh, like you mentioned in the in the episode with the, uh, with the heat transfer, then if if you turn off the fan, you get hot really 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 fast. So then I I just uh, I just uh, I I do the sessions without a fan uh, at least until I'm I'm so hot I can't perform more and then I can put the fan on. I've been through the same thing too where um maybe I forget to turn the fan on when I start a workout and it's incredible how much of a difference it makes to your perceived exertion. Uh so even when I'm doing a warm up at fairly low wattage uh it will feel hard without the fan and then once you turn it on it all of a sudden it's like you're reducing the resistance, even though you're doing the same wattage. It just feels like a night and day difference. Uh, but it's it's very important. Um, I, I find it frustrating because it feels like I'm doing a low wattage and it's hard. But it's very important from the heat acclimation perspective, being able to get your body used to those conditions. What I'm curious about is if uh, I know Andrew, you and I, when we did that heat training episode, uh, you talked about the. Uh, the threshold temperature at which they pull the plug during any kind of test. Um, can you remind us what that is, the the core body temperature? So in the test that I had done, it was 39.5 Celsius was the threshold that we used, and that was with a um, an ingestible thermometer, so just a, a little pill that has the, uh, the address kind of beamed out wirelessly to a receiver. Uh, and then the the base or the baseline temperature for a lot of people is around 37.5, so that's about a 2-degree increase in your core temperature. I'm curious if there is a, if there's ever been any research and uh, hit us up if you know of this uh, research done on you know do you have to you know do you have to increase your core temperature by X let's say by the two degrees that Andrew was talking about in order and then you know hang out there for Y amount of time in order to see meaningful heat adaptation I'd be curious to see that because then you can you can you know, as a coach or a self-coached athlete, you can then go ahead and design some workouts because you can, you know, you can take some things and, and Andrew gave you guys some numbers 
on um, on the heat generation um, in cycling, especially if you're measuring power, that that formula is pretty straightforward. And if you're sitting in a basement with no air movement, you know he had um, some. It was something like ten to twelve minutes, depending on how hard people were working, um, before you hit that two degree two degree temperature increase. And uh, I'm wondering if uh, if there's any research out there that we can we can say, well, if you spend, you know. An hour, three days a week, like Alan was suggesting, for uh, six weeks at baseline plus two centigrade, then you are going to see some measurable heat adaptation. Maybe that's a little bit complicated, but I'd love to have kind of a, a, a rubric for something like that. I think there actually is a resource that I can dig up that has a little bit of information about that. It hasn't been studied in depth from what I know, but um, I'll, I'll post what uh, what I do have for, for resources and research that's been done there. But I think my, my interpretation is that it would be a lot like weight training where you start at a low weight and eventually you're able to push the limits further and further or just like any kind of training really. Um, and as you push the temperature, your core body temperature up, your body adapts to that and it becomes better at handling those conditions. Makes sense, but I think with with heat, you know, there's a, there's a certain temperature. You know, you're gonna get the whichever psychobiological or central governor model you prefer. You know, you're gonna get you're gonna get that shift that that switch shifting off um, at a certain oh, temperature. Yeah. So maybe you might be able to. What I would say what I would say is you might be able to increase duration over time, so your tolerance would go up. So you might be able to tolerate you know two degrees above baseline for progressively longer periods, and I I think that would be kind of a measure of adaptation. So that'd be interesting to see, actually. That would be yeah, a fun experiment to conduct. Yeah, unfortunately, those pills are quite expensive. <laughs> so that one's a hard one. <laughs> but you don't need a pill. I'm saying on yep. the bike, you could just yeah, say, yeah. you know, look, if you're if you're pedaling at 200 watts, it'll take you, you know, with no with no airflow in a basement that's 20 degrees centigrade, then it'll take you whatever 12 minutes to hit two degrees above baseline, and then. You know, how long can you hang out there before you really want to stop? So, Alan, when you're doing the heat adaptation, um, do you find that over time you get better and better at handling the amount of time you can have the fan off? Yeah, definitely. So that was like, yeah, like you mentioned, it's it's uh, it's like any training or, or weight training. It's uh, I I definitely feel the improvements and like if you if I go in the steam room uh, where the humidity is really high, which is I find much much uh, much hotter than going in our sauna. Uh, I could uh, I could like start off and and ten minutes was 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 my like pain threshold or it was it what I I felt I could cope with. But after uh, I, uh, doing it long enough, I I could stay there for nearly half an hour. So that was uh, that was a lot more. Uh, and I've I haven't. I've I've actually I, I searched uh, researched those pills again and found them uh, expensive because um, in the in the Norseman they have, have the research uh, they have done some research that actually how uh, how cold water affects your swimming so I was a part of that experience so I swallowed one of those pills during the Norseman uh, and I wanted to have one. I do it myself because uh, that's that's how I, uh, I I want to do it. I want to I want to 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 measure the core temperature and do different things and see how it how effective it is. Um, so I haven't uh, unfortunately not haven't uh, found a like a uh, standardized protocol for how I can heat acclimatize best. So I just I just have to to do 
put uh, put myself under heat stress uh, where I feel it's uh, it's tough, but not too much. I think you. I I, I agree with what you're saying here, um, Alan. I think that. Uh, that there is no, in my research too, I haven't found anything that's conclusive that says this is the best way to do it. Um, I think certainly your approach of train in the heat and then pro- and then progressively increase your duration in that heat or you know the duration that you spend in the steam room after a workout, um, that's going to call co- that's going to create some kind of adaptation that you know we while you may not be able to be hyper accurate or hyper precise with the magnitude of the adaptation, you know that there is an adaptation and that you know that it's going to help when you are faced with those conditions on race day. Yeah. So it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more subjective, but it, it, it does exist. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it actually, it actually, it helps during cold races as well, because it increases the, um, the white or the blood, the blood volume. Yes. Ab- you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's all races. You're absolutely right. So I, I have uh, another friend who's uh, who's uh, who got a PhD in uh, oh it's uh, like blood flow <laughs> and he's he's done the he's a part of the Northman crew and he's done the crew race like nine times so I, I I talked to him a couple of times and he's like yeah you you should do the heat adaptation even for Northman so I'm I'm actually I'm doing doing uh, doing it much more like from this year and uh, and last year uh, like all the way year round <laughs> the other thing i've heard too um the other thing i've heard too is that the same heat adaptation the increased plasma volume can help with altitude um and just how people compensate with going to the the higher altitudes and having lower oxygen content so it seems like that's kind of a catch all that it's just a good practice to do yeah, yeah, it's a training stress that is that is beneficial, regardless of the you know look like running fast or or running in running faster or running in hotter conditions or running at higher altitude or all you know all increase the the workload on your body. So anything you can do in training to you know make your body that much better at coping with extra workload and heat training is one of those things you can do will help in all of those conditions. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I think the mechanism behind that, uh, behind the crossover between heat and altitude is, um, as Alan pointed out, uh, heat training does increase blood plasma volume. And then your, um, you know, your, uh, your bone marrow kicks in and produces more red blood cells to maintain the concentration of red blood cells. Now that you have more blood plasma volume, you're going to need, you're going to have uh, more red blood cells. And then when you go to altitude, the fact that you have more of those uh, oxygen carrying cells, then you're going to be able to cope with the the lower concentration of oxygen uh, a little bit better. Yeah. I, I don't quote me on that, but I believe that's the mechanism. Yeah. No, yeah, but uh, there there is uh, a an, an Norwegian study, which isn't released yet, which uh, will they try to to heat acclimatize instead of going to the do to the to the altitude, and uh, they were having stunning results. But I like it isn't released yet; it was just on like the Norwegian news. So that will be interesting to see. Cool. Yeah, we'll have yeah. to keep our eyes open for the the results of that study. Yeah, I, I will definitely uh, send it to you when when it uh, when I see it. Excellent. 
So there were a couple other things that uh, we wanted to touch on briefly. Um, so you, we we talked a little bit about aerodynamics there and how you tested with the the winter jacket to get the most out of your Norseman race. Um, but you've got a lot of experience with aerodynamics and you've got a goal of becoming essentially the most aerodynamic triathlete. Um, so what kind of things have you done to pursue that goal? Yeah, uh, the ambitions was quite quite high, but uh, I thought, uh, why not? <laughs> It's a, uh, it's uh, yeah. I I think there's a, a there's obviously a lot to be gained uh, by aerodynamics uh, and 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 really going into it um, because there's much more tools available now than there were before. You have the the obvious things, the wind tunnel, and my previous uh, cycle sponsor Boardman made a new one. Uh, which I was lucky enough to try out, and then you have the the Stack Zero virtual wind tunnel, uh, which was uh, the reason why I contacted uh, Andrew in the first place. Which because I thought uh, making a virtual wind tunnel like that must be the future. Why haven't anybody thought of that? And then I googled around, and then I found Stack Zero. <laughs> so that was uh, that was uh, that was really cool because uh, it's. Uh, it opens uh, a new way of possibilities uh, in in regards of uh, testing things and um, and yeah and 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 doing a lot of uh, um, yeah you can do much more tests than you you could do in a wind tunnel and you could be much more creative as well because it's it's very difficult to do uh, things major changes in the wind tunnel with uh, like in regards of the cockpit because you have to you have to mechanically change it out or you have to tweak it so it's it's much easier to to do that in a virtual wind tunnel so the virtual wind tunnel was uh, was the other thing and was the second thing and the last thing was uh, it doesn't it doesn't matter what theoretical aerodynamic numbers you have you have to show it on race day we have to show it in the real world, and that's where the like the arrow sticks, which is quite new on the market. Uh, or I don't know if it it has actually reached the market yet. Uh, that was, that was there. There's some in beta testing. I've got one that I've been playing around with, um, which we uh, ought to do an episode on. Uh, while I, at least once I fully wrap my head around its its usability, but uh, yeah, there's uh, there's a couple in kind of in like beta release, at least in Canada. Yeah, 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 we have uh, I, uh, we have a few in, or uh, at least one I know of in Norway. It was it's, it's called Notio. It's the one I have. Uh, so that yeah, was, I have it too. It's the same one. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the one I was because then uh, you could replicate uh, or you could measure like drag in real time, and I I saw that as a huge advantage. So when you have like the the actual wind tunnel, you have the virtual wind tunnel, and you have the aerostix, then I thought, yeah. I I can be the most aerodynamic guy in the world at least at least for a moment if I if I if I use if I use them all correctly. But like the aerostick, it it hasn't it, the software isn't isn't on board yet, so I haven't been getting any useful data of that uh, yet, unfortunately. I think you brought up some really important points, though, um, because there are these different tools available, and a lot of people view them as one or the other. But I think what you mentioned, using them all together is by far the best application of it, because 
the wind tunnel is great for validation, but it doesn't really replicate real world conditions. And if you get tired during a race, something like that, you have no way of getting feedback. Um, the, the virtual wind tunnel is something I really like because you can basically have a control experiment and hold everything else constant. Uh, and be able to just make one small change. And then that gives you the the ability to look at what happens when I change just this one thing, like my water bottle position. And I know that's something that you and I looked at in the past, Alan, was just how to mount the bottle behind the seat. Um, and then the arrow stick, once the, once the software improves a little bit, um, that gives you the, the real world feedback so that you know in the middle of a race, like I'm getting lazy or I'm getting tired and my position's getting worse. And then you can make those changes and you can make yourself faster in the middle of the race. So it's it's expensive to use all of those, but really that's the best way, in my opinion. You're, you're taking all the tools you have available and you're just making yourself a faster, better athlete as a whole. For sure. And I'm just going to interject a little bit of context for listeners. Um, if you haven't, go ahead, uh, go back and listen to our road bike versus tri bike episode where Andrew and I spit out some numbers about how much of a difference aerodynamics make. And, you know, you, you may be thinking that uh, that Alan here is splitting hairs by trying to figure out which way he's going to he's going to mount his bottle. But if you are it doesn't matter really how quickly you complete a, uh, a portion of the bike. This is essentially free time. So even if it gains you, you know, 15 or 20 seconds or 30 seconds in a race, um, this is, this is time that is essentially you you've gained without getting any fitter. And if you're going to mount a bottle behind your saddle, or if you're going to mount a bottle somewhere on your bike, you may as well put it in the most aerodynamically optimized location. Yeah, there's no point in in knowingly making a wasteful choice. So if if you've got the option, you might as well do the thing that makes you fastest. Because if you have a gap, if you imagine running with someone 30 seconds ahead of you and you wanted to close that gap, that takes a lot of effort. 30 seconds doesn't seem like much, but it could be 100 meters or so. And to make up that distance is actually a ton of physiological effort. I agree. I, I, I really, really agree. And I, ha- I, I, I hear it so often that like, um, yeah, my limiter is not the aerodynamic. It is, it is, it is the shape. So I need to, I need to get the training done before I look at the aerodynamic. Um, and I'm like, why do you have to choose between getting the training or the aerodynamic? It's, it's not like you have to choose one or the other. It's uh, to you should of course train to get as fit as possible, but uh, you should always also do like the obvious things to to improve the aerodynamics. And I see much more waste of aerodynamic uh, uh, than than waste of uh, at least uh, training uh, training hours. I agree entirely. I think we spend so much time with, uh, you know, with optimizing training and, and, you know, using the tools that we have available you know, on the bike, obviously power meters and things to, uh, to design training programs and to, to do good testing and to, you know, to make sure that we're training as efficiently as possible and really getting as fit as possible for race day. But I, I totally agree with you. And Andrew and I talked about aerodynamic crimes in that episode um, that I mentioned. Yeah, and yeah you I see, love that. You see, you see a lot of that because, you know, you see people sitting up on, on tri bikes, people riding $15,000 TT bikes and they're sitting up and it's not, they're not sitting up to take a drink. They're just, they're hanging out there. So obviously something is wrong. 
because then you've just, you know, you've taken. Yeah, I see that a lot. Yeah, you've taken a bike that, you know, even if your position's average and you're 0.25 CDA, you're sitting up, you're, you know, you might be 0.35 and you're, you're, you're really not doing yourself any favors at, uh, at that point. No, no, definitely not. And like the, the people who are saying it, they are, uh, they are in, in worse shape than me and they're slower than me. So why would they even be? having to do a harder race because of poor aerodynamic to just increase the load. I, I, I don't, I don't see why anyone wants to do <laughs> to do more work. <laughs> yeah. Do more work. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot, Alan. Now you're saying you want to be the fastest, uh, or excuse me, not the fastest, the most aerodynamic triathlete in the world. How are you going to evaluate that? How are you, you're, you're publishing your CDA numbers, but the very few professional athletes are publishing those numbers. Uh, Cody Beals is a notable exception. He, uh, he's pretty, he's a pretty open book when it comes to this kind of stuff. So how are you going to, how are you going to assess whether or not you've, uh, you've hit that lofty goal of being the most aerodynamic triathlete on the, on the planet? Yeah, 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 no, uh, that's that that is a real issue because uh, I, I I wouldn't know because many people don't post their numbers, but I would be completely open with my numbers. And in the wind tunnel, I have uh, the lowest I measured at five degrees yards was point one seven five. Uh, that's ridiculously low. Whew. Yeah, yeah, that's that that is good. But we had to do some adjustments with the cockpit. So when I went to the Stack zero, then I was one point uh, one eight five. There's still nothing wrong with that. <laughs> and you're a tall guy too, right? You're yeah. you're you're you know if you were if you were like five foot six at one hundred and twenty hundred ten hundred twenty pounds, that's one thing. But you're yeah, I'm five. I'm 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 five feet eleven. Sorry, uh, let's go. Let's go metric. I should be. I should be metric anyway. Yeah, if you were once 165 centimeters and weighed like you know 50 kilos, uh, then then I could. I could. I that that number wouldn't wouldn't blow my head off. But uh, at your height and weight, that's a really really impressive number. Because as we as Andrew and I have talked about in the past, you can't really do much about those legs. No. Uh, so it's yeah. No. So um and so those numbers was really good, and we made some improvement with the bottles. That actually when we changed the up optimized bottle position against my worst bottle position, which actually was my current position. We uh, reduced uh, reduced uh, Ironman time with 90 seconds. So that's that's quite a lot. Um, and then I think we're down to 0.1181181182. But then again, I have to, to, to do uh, like I did Ironman Texas, then I had a, a 420 uh bike ride and i did it on 242 watts wow which is quite low nice yeah because if from from like yeah i've 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 had done races with 270 watts so that's where i where i'm capable of of riding and and if i could do it like on 240 watts that's great because then i i would accumulate less heat for the run so that's the reason for i I was trying to conserve energy in Texas, but the, it, it was quite a fast bike split, uh, despite of the quite quite low number. So that's uh, I I don't know how how I could evaluate it, but I, I I put all my numbers out there and just riding as fast as possible with the with the, with with not the, not the huge watts because I know like the the Andrew 
Starkwich did Ironman Texas as well, and he really crushed me on the bike. But uh, someone who picked up his bike read 340 watts in average. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, uh, and for me, that would be impossible. Uh, I could ride it for an hour at most, uh, not four hours. Uh, but then you see how 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 little time in relevance he gained from putting 100 watts more. Sure. And then how much more energy he spent and how much more heat he accumulated and then how much more, you know, strain on the neuromuscular system he placed compared to you. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that's, that's an obvious win. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's obviously. And so I, I wouldn't know if I'm the most aerodynamic in the world, but uh, I, I put my number out there and if every, uh, anyone is, is, uh, think they can beat me, just, uh, they're free to share. <laughs> Throwing down the challenge. <laughs> yeah, if you're out there and you have a and you have a CDA that's uh, that's below one eight two point one eight two, let us know and we'll put you in touch with Alan so you guys can have an a little arrow off. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and just to note, I'm the most aerodynamic triathlete, so you uh, you have to be able to actually ride the position for 180k, and you have to see the road. <laughs> So if you have a, like a, like track specialist, then you you could go much lower with your head and just mo- look down. And, but it isn't, and you can go much lower with the front as well. Uh, but you the hip angle would be it wouldn't be possible to run the marathon afterwards. So it is a triathlon specific. Uh, you have to you have to do a full distance race with that position. That's an important caveat. Why don't we? Uh... Why don't we end the episode on this note with an open challenge to anyone uh, who thinks they can best Alan's CDA. And what I can do is actually print out a little trophy. So we'll, uh, we'll pass that around. We've got, uh, we've got the 3D printer, so we might as well use it for neat little applications like this. But we'll make a little trophy for you, Alan. And yeah. if anyone can beat that, maybe we'll just pass that trophy around and, and see who ends up with it. Yeah, that's, that's a great challenge. <laughs> right now, I, I say that I vote my N equal one vote that uh, that Alan is the fastest because I've never seen a number below that. So it's in, in my admittedly small universe of, of triathlete CDAs, Alan, you're the fastest. So unless someone can uh, can show us that they are faster still with the conditions, obviously, that you can still run off the bike and you can see the road and you can do an Ironman in that position, then uh, then Alan, you're you're currently the, uh, the, the, the reigning champion. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> um, Andrew, what was uh, what's uh, Vanderlinden CDA? Because he's he's well, he's a smaller guy, but he was really low too, wasn't he? Yeah, he's in the same range. I think 0.185 was the last time we measured, so it's it's in the same range. But again, he's um, he's that smaller athlete size that you mentioned in in around the the 50 kilogram mark, and and much shorter than Alan. So. They're both good numbers, but I think um, just because of the physical size, Alan's able to put out a bit more power. So that that benefits him sure. a little bit on the on the actual uh, the total bike speed. Um, but uh, yeah, still very good number. Uh, well, excellent number for Alan. Very good number for Alex. So it's um, <laughs> it's something I can only dream of getting to that number. Oh my God! Yes, yeah. Um, well, listen, Alan. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. I was just coming off uh, uh, some hill repeats on the run. Well, we're glad you made it to join us. That was a great conversation, and hopefully everyone enjoyed listening to your perspective on how to deal with both the heat and the cold and aerodynamics. 
Yeah, thank you very much. I feel we had so much more to discuss. At least now we talked about the acclimatization part, but we didn't actually talk about how to, what I do to get colder in the actual races, but that we can save up for another time. Sounds great. Yeah, we'd, be, we'd love to have you back on again, Alan. Thank you very much again. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great conversation. I think we'll definitely have to do a follow-up. And yeah, there's a lot of tips I think everyone can take from that. So um, we appreciate your your input and the challenge for everyone. Yeah, no, but it's it's really uh, it's really uh, no, it's it's really nice to talk to you about it. And I hope we can spread the challenge. So I get some uh, I get some 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 good challenges. And because that's the whole thing about if you if you open up, then you then you can share the good ideas, and then you get some in return as well. Yep, absolutely. It just makes the sport better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's like that's triathlon for me as well. Because when I started triathlon, I was very welcomed in the in the sport, and I want to like give back in in that regard. So I love that spirit. All right, everybody, thank you very much for listening. Uh, and thank you again to Alan for joining us. So we hope that you uh, like the show. And if you do, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. Also rate and review us on iTunes and uh, tune in next week for our next installment. No, the 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 core measurement is, temperature is is an issue because a lot of the research done on it. I think they had to use a normal like a rectal <laughs> rectal core check, which isn't very popular. No, it's hard to do hard to do when you're riding a bike too. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that would be an uncomfortable bike seat. Yeah, yeah had, that like, was uh, an integrated rectal thermometer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>